Happy Hallow Well Week, everyone, and welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Periodical Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and as always, I've got the amazingly talented, high-spirited Tavis Killian here. Oh, you shouldn't have. And we're going to try something a little bit new today. Instead of our typical analytical-based approach, we're going to go for more of an opinion piece this week, as we'll be discussing the effects of a second wave of the coronavirus on global oil demand. This podcast is going to cover the content in this week's periodical that, as always, I released this past Wednesday, October the 28th. So, let's get into it. There's no doubt that Europe is seeing a second wave of coronavirus infections, and there is no question whether or not the rest of the world will eventually follow. If you have been following the news headlines recently, there have been many titles along the lines of Oil prices fall as concerns about second wave weigh on markets, or Second wave of COVID-19 threatens to shut down major economies. If a second wave of shutdowns were to strike the global market, what would that do to future demand? The surge in coronavirus cases in many major developed oil-consuming economies has rekindled fears that oil demand recovery is again off track, and market balancing is still further away. Luckily, those fears are misplaced as a second wave of shutdowns may not take as large of a dent out of global demand as individuals have begun to resume their day-to-day lives. Now, the past six months have been, well, pretty stressful. There is stress from worrying about whether you're going to catch a potentially deadly virus, seeing loved ones catch it, trying to work from home, and sending the kids back to school. Now, the stress of a second wave is upon the world. While no one wants a repeat of the COVID-driven economic shutdown with the economy reopening and no vaccine yet available, the possibility can't be ignored. Economies worldwide can ill afford another shutdown, as many have mirrored the effects seen on Canada's GDP that dropped a whole whopping 38.7% year-over-year in the second quarter of 2020. But it has since rebounded strongly. The Canadian economy grew by 4.8% in May, 6.5% in June, and an additional 3% in July. Yet a continued recovery assumes that any future wave of the pandemic requires a lighter containment touch than was necessary to flatten the first wave. While the increase in cases may partly be explained by improved testing, the virus is spreading more among younger people who tend to have less severe symptoms, while seniors and others at risk are taking greater precautions. For these reasons, we remain confident that a second generalized economic lockdown is unlikely, stated National Bank Financial Incorporated, who has been assessing COVID cases in North America and Europe. What they and many economies and political leaders alike have suggested is a strategy to address a second wave of COVID-19 control that focuses on limiting victims without crimping the economy. Even without a second shutdown, economies aren't expected to return to pre-pandemic levels of output this year. The GDP gap between Q4 of 2020 and Q4 of 2019 could be 4 to 6% for Canada, as well as the US and UK, according to RBC Economics. Therefore, new containment strategies are focusing on boosting the economy. But what will it mean for global oil demand? In order to understand this, it is important to look into travel restrictions and lockdown orders. Now, real quick, we're not trying to downplay the severity of this virus. We just want to point out some trends that we've noticed and trends that we here at Rare Petro have been experiencing. So Tavis, let's just give an example here. Have you noticed, you know, more and more younger folks or maybe people that aren't as at risk and then maybe even fewer senior citizens at, say, the grocery store, out at a park, walking around in the neighborhood? Oh yeah, definitely. I go into King Supers and you, you don't recognize it immediately, but if you look back, you think, I am definitely seeing 
far fewer senior citizens or people in that age range that are threatened out in those places. Well, I think even now they still have those special hours in the first hour of the day that you're not even allowed in the grocery store if you're below, I think, 65. I had no idea about that. Yeah. So, and it's just another one of those measures that the world has come up with to try and limit the spread of the virus, and help protect people that need that protection. Yeah, but then on the other side of the coin, or the other side of the age spectrum, I suppose, the younger people, yeah, I definitely see them out and about. I see a lot of my peers, myself included, trying to do the things that we were doing before the pandemic. Maybe I'm not going to house parties, but there's definitely kids still out and about, and a lot of younger people are working lots of retail or service jobs so whether or not they want to be out and about, they're out there too. So, and, and that's kind of that basis of, of where this argument is coming from. People are trying to resume their day-to-day lives. But first, let's talk about travel restrictions. So following the coronavirus pandemic and heightened by a surge of a second wave, countries worldwide continue to restrict entry and most travel still remains discouraged. Acting Department of Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf wrote on Twitter this past week, To continue to limit the spread of COVID, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada will extend the restrictions on non-essential travel through November 21st. We are working closely with Mexico and Canada to identify safe criteria to ease the restrictions in the future and support border communities. The move is a continuation of measures that were originally implemented way back on March 21st, and they've been extended every month since. The agreement suspended all non-essential travel between the countries, including both tourism and recreational trips, but essential commerce and trade remain unaffected under the deal. Although less restrictive than entry into North America, the European Union member states generally allow entry for citizens or residents of other EU countries and the Schengen area. Anyone without residency or citizenship in these areas wishing to enter from a third country must have valid justification. While most of the world continues to partially restrict travel from other countries, some South American, African, and Asian countries have total travel bans. Beyond the global travel restrictions, information on the pandemic is constantly fluctuating in the United States, and all of the 50 states are having to adapt rapidly to new rules and regulations. In fact, there are now 17 states and Washington, D.C. that have travel restrictions on other states, with New York leading the charge. While many of these states require self-isolation for a two-week period from COVID hotspots, the majority of U.S. states are now on New York's COVID travel restriction list, according to Governor Cuomo. People traveling to New York from 43 states and territories now meet the criteria to quarantine for two weeks upon arrival. While the practice has not eliminated travel into state, it surely has slowed the influx. In addition to discouraging travel, as opposed to banning travel or an entire country lockdowns, An increasingly popular practice is localized lockdowns. And I actually checked this morning. That number is now up to 44 states and territories. But that was after I posted this periodical. So That's brutal. I actually have a friend. uh, She graduated in my class, Claire. I forget what she majored in, but she was very smart. She's actually just arrived in New York yesterday because her company said, hey, we need you to do work up there. First thing she said was, can I not go to New York? And they said, no. So now she's quarantining for two weeks. Stuck in a hotel for two weeks. Still working remotely to hopefully in two weeks meet face-to-face with people unless something goes bad. Yeah, wouldn't that be funny if, you know, on day 13 they say, actually, you know, you can head back home. Yep. I I feel bad for her, but, you know, it's it's difficult. It's weird. I guess hotels are probably making bank in that area. I I would assume so. I mean, what where else are people going to go to quarantine for, for 14 days weeks, right? if they don't live there? Uh, I don't know. Go camp in Central Park in the middle of winter? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, let's talk about these localized lockdowns. So around the world, policymakers have implemented localized lockdowns in small geographic areas to prevent the spread of the disease. As governments ease restrictions, localized lockdowns are becoming a relevant policy option in cases of resurgence as they can, in principle, reduce social and economic costs compared to larger-scale COVID suppression strategies. Instead of having entire states or even countries on lockdown, local governments are only restricting certain, quote, hotspots. After entire nations were shut down during the first surge of the coronavirus earlier this year, some countries and U.S. states are trying more targeted measures as cases rise again around the world, especially in Europe and the Americas. New lockdown orders for cities in the United States zero in on individual neighborhoods, closing schools and businesses and hotspots, measuring just a couple of square miles. In New York, all neighborhoods that had a positivity rate in recent days of more than 3%, in contrast to the city's overall rate of about 1.5%, have been put back in various forms of lockdown. Spanish officials have limited travel to and from some parts of Madrid before restrictions were widened throughout the capital and some suburbs, while Italian authorities have sometimes quarantined spots as small as a single building. The concept of containing hotspots isn't new, but it's being tested under new pressures as authorities try to avoid a dreaded resurgence of illness and deaths. This time, it is met with more resistance from economies weakened by earlier lockdowns, populations angered at the idea of renewed restrictions, and some communities complaining of unequal treatment, but the idea is strategic. It allows for the continued mobilization of substantial resources to where they are needed most while ensuring greater mobility for the majority of individuals. Quote, as a general principle, the targeting of measures to specific groups or geographical area is preferable to one-size-fits-all measures because they allow us to minimize the damage that social distancing inevitably imposes on society and the economy, end quote, said Flavio Toxverd, who specializes in economic epidemiology at the University of Cambridge. I am amazed that you got that name. Well done. I, did I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Localized lockdowns will allow individuals more freedom to move about in a safe manner while ensuring the spread of the virus is contained. On the flip side, countries including Israel and the Czech Republic have reinstalled nationwide closures while many other governments hope smaller-scale shutdowns can work in conjunction with testing, contact tracing, and other initiatives that they've now built up. Now, I know it might not seem fair, especially in that example we gave in Italy where uh, authorities are actually quarantining a single building. You know, granted, this isn't just going to be, you know, a single residential home. This is going to be a, a massive apartment building with lots of families living there. But still, um, in, in situations like that, it might not seem fair. But I am a huge supporter of these policies, mainly because it still allows individuals to attempt to go back to, you know, their their normal day-to-day -day lives, while at the same time just trying to control the spread in a more targeted manner. Right? I mean, New York City is not the same as rural Argentina. There's areas all over the globe that have different factors, and if we can target the areas that are of greatest risk and try and let other people do their thing if they're clean and healthy, I say go for it. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, look at New York, for example. Granted, limiting entry from 43 different states I do think is a little bit extreme. I think it should be more of, you know, hey, if you're traveling from... You know, say Denver, Colorado. Yeah, Denver's had this huge surge yeah. in cases. They're probably upwards of, I think, 8-ish percent. Okay, maybe you should be forced to quarantine for two weeks while entering. But say you live way up north, you know, where your nearest neighbor is, you know, 10 miles away and you haven't had contact with other individuals. I don't necessarily think you should be looped into 
you know, the, the entirety of Colorado, but maybe that's where these individuals are getting upset. You know, mm -hmm. why do I have to quarantine, you know, just because someone down the hall from me, you know, was out and about partying and now is worrying about getting the entire apartment complex. Sick. Yeah. So like I said, you know, you win some, you lose some, but I, I am a proponent of localized lockdowns as opposed to larger scale statewide, countrywide exactly. lockdowns. So now let's talk about the analytical side. So demand destruction in gasoline consumption. Luckily, global demand is already trending towards pre-pandemic levels in many big hitting areas of global consumption. Look at petrochemicals, construction materials, freight transport, and well, most notably personal transport. While the world is still a few million barrels shy of global demand from pre-pandemic levels, demand is returning with transportation leading the charge. Unfortunately, oil prices have been dragged down by concerns of supply increases amid stalled demand recovery. This stems from many countries, especially in Europe, reimposing some of the restrictions to curb the spread of the coronavirus as many major economies, including the UK, Germany, France, hey, even Italy, are battling a second wave. Events that should have pushed oil prices higher, like domestic crude oil stockpile draws that we've been seeing recently, even the hurricane outages in the US Gulf of Mexico, they're recently overshadowed by demand fears of the coming second wave. These fears are mainly from agencies blaming the delay in crude oil demand recovery on transportation fuels, noting that, quote, the aviation and road transport sectors, both essential components of oil consumption, struggled during the pandemic, end quote. These concerns just don't justify the current level of low oil prices. Since 68% of U.S. petroleum consumption resides in the transportation sector, it is no wonder the precipitous drop in this consumption caused the biggest drop in global crude oil demand during the peak of the pandemic. With economies opening back up, adults returning to work, kids returning to school, and families fearing travel via airplanes, road traffic has resumed around the world. In fact, Bank of America analysts announced road traffic has nearly recovered from pre-pandemic levels and expects global wait, yeah, and expects global oil demand from road use to go positive year over year within the next few months. Even with rising levels of cases in places like Nebraska, which saw one of the highest new case counts per day in early October, are seeing more traffic on their highways than ever before. Traffic on the interstate system west of Lincoln and through Omaha, which fell 44% on the year in early April, was up 8% and rural highways were up 5% from their historic peaks. Texas, which has become a recent COVID hotspot, and Minnesota, which has recently locked down again, are noticing similar trends. Cities like Austin saw road traffic topping 80% of last year's average at the end of September, and the Twin Cities reported a drop of only 15% road traffic and falling daily at the end of October. These statistics indicate that the 45% of global oil demand that goes into creating gasoline has returned to pre-pandemic levels, and individuals appear to still be driving regardless of a second wave. All right, folks, this isn't a discussion on whether or not demand will decrease during a second wave. It's simply a statement that based on the data in observed societal behavior, it may not be as bad as the first round. It's fair to anticipate that fewer individuals will heed the lockdown orders and more localized shutdowns will not cause as large of an impact. When global economies shut down and society sheltered in place, global demand destruction nearly wiped out the oil and gas industry. As demand outpaces supply for the foreseeable future, a possible relatively reduced impact to demand by a second wave as compared to the initial wave could be largely unnoticeable. Road traffic that controls nearly half of global oil demand is already back to normal and above normal in some pockets. Society has been put through the ringer and, armed with more information, is well equipped to tackle this ensuing second wave. 
All right, let's look at this from our perspective, Tavis. Alrighty. Today, Denver announced further restrictions that are going into effect, I believe this afternoon. Um, but anyways, is that going to change how you go about your life? Oh, I don't live in a Denver county, and I rarely go into Denver for really any reason, so no. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think so. And, and people are assuming that, oh, this second wave is going to totally change how we live our lives. I don't really think so. I mean, I think the weather is going to affect your consumption habits more than COVID. Yeah, that's the th- I drive a scooter, though. And that's why <laughs> I'm consuming less because, man, it was snowy the other day. I'm going to work from home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but here's the thing. People around our office, people I interact with, I'm sure people that you interact with, mm-hmm. they feel the same way. They want to just get back to the way their lives were before while keeping other individuals safe. Exactly. Within the first 90 days of 2020, collectively everyone's plans changed. Flights were canceled, events and parties were postponed, and for the foreseeable future, life as we knew it was put on hold. The stress of a second wave may be overwhelming, but for some people, it is more than overwhelming. It means a continued fight for economic survival. With the resurgence of the global pandemic, people are starting to fight back. Fear of the virus seems to have taken a backseat to fear of individuals' livelihoods. Is this necessarily the correct course of action? Well, possibly not, but it does make sense. Parents want their children to return to school to develop the social skills needed for socialization in society, to boost their immune systems, and so they can return to work to make a living for their families. Kids want to return to school to see their friends and be able to go to the park without having to wear what some of them see as a silly mask. Young adults are craving social interactions that makes living that part of your life so exciting. People are scared of the virus, but have begun to recognize social and economic interactions are also important. So what does this mean? Fear of the virus is likely not going to keep people locked up anymore. They will still adhere to limits on social interactions, large gatherings, and things society deems unsafe, because while they might be frustrated, most people attempt to be logical. They're going to continue to drive to the grocery store, order items off the internet, and have Zoom calls with friends and family. They might also drive to the next town over to have a picnic with a loved one, drive to the beach or mountains for a socially distanced event, or even take a road trip for the sake of adventure. One thing is for sure, society will continue to be mobile. If lockdowns are not forced, individuals will attempt to continue to live life in this new normal as similar as they can to what we call around here the pre-pandemic life. As a result, global economies will most likely not be completely derailed, and global oil demand probably won't fall off a cliff. The second wave will bring difficulties and hiccups, but it will not be an identical repeat of the initial wave. In the wise words of Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher, essayist, and cultural critic, there are always going to be rocks in the road ahead of us. They will be either stumbling blocks or stepping stones. It all depends on how you use them. It is time to face the second wave head-on, roll with the punches, and just keep living life. And ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have for you for this week. But this is not the first piece revolving around demand changes related to the pandemic. So if you want to see more of Kevin's work, please go to rarepetro.com. Plenty of periodicals up to read, and if reading's not your thing, we do it in podcast form. Hell, you're listening to it right now. So consume some more of that content. Please let us know what you think through reviews. Email us at podcast at rarepetro.com. Let us know what you have to say, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. And happy Halloween.